Hello, this is Change Agents, a series about change and the people who make it happen. I'm Andrew Dodd. Today, reforming Australia's coward punch laws. And I thought, well, six years, five years, is that all David's life is worth? Is that what anyone's life is worth? You know, how much more dead do you have to be? Dead's dead. Why is there a chance that he can walk out scot-free? And that was the point then that I decided, right, when this is over, we're going to implement some legislation change. The death this week of Melbourne surgeon Patrick Pritzweld Stegman has again brought attention to the rate of deaths due to coward punches or one-punch attacks. In response to this form of violence, Australia's states and territories have enacted different kinds of laws. Generally, though, the reforms they've introduced were driven by single-minded people, moved by grief to see justice for the loved ones they lost. And today we'll meet two of these agents of change. In Victoria, Caterina Politi campaigned successfully for 10-year mandatory minimum sentences following the death of her son David. And in the Northern Territory, police officer Amy Meredith campaigned for tougher laws following the death of her husband, Brett. Brett was also a police officer and, as Amy explains, was celebrating on New Year's Eve 2009 when he was attacked. So Brett, he headed out, as you do on a New Year's celebrations, with friends from work. And they've ended up at the only nightclub in Catherine, which was called Club 23 back then. And inside the club, uh, it was New Year's Day by that time, um, an altercation occurred with a gentleman called Michael Martin. And as a result of that altercation, it, it turned physical um heated words were exchanged it turned physical and and brett suffered what we now know as a coward punch to the side of the face well it came at him from the side but it hit him flush direct on the face causing him to fall back and hit his head on the dance floor of the nightclub and it happened just before closing Uh, i received a phone call just after three o'clock from the catherine police um, out at my remote station and At that stage, people just thought that he had been knocked out in a fight and the ambulance crew had were were requesting to find out some sort of medical background for him. And so they were asking me the standard questions, you know, medical background. And I I thought to myself at that time, how how serious is this? If if they're asking these questions, has he come to? And that's when I was told that he hadn't regained consciousness at that stage. Um, not to panic, and that the ambulance were with him and and they would keep me updated. And Katerina, New Year's Eve 2012, a very uh, shocking night for you. Your son is out enjoying a party. What happened? Yeah, David um, and his friends were out celebrating the friend's birthday, which was actually on the 30th of December, and they had left the Portsea Hotel and it just had ticked over to... Uh, the 31st. So it was early, early New Year's Eve on their way back uh, to their accommodation that night. Uh, they caught the bus. Uh, David actually paid for a stranger's bus fare as well that night. So um, 
only half an hour before it all unfolded. They uh, were walking along the road. Um, they got off at Rye. Um, they had a long walk to Rosebud. And they were, you know, staggered in, there was about nine of them. They were walking in a staggered group, some at the front, some in the middle, and David was at the back with a birthday boy and another friend. When from across the road, um, Dylan crossed across the road and had a, a wide road and footpath to cross over, but he decided to hip and shoulder David and David kept walking and said, you know, have a sick one, mate, which that's apparently good in young people's language. David and his mates kept walking. Kloster went into a boxing stance and yelled out some very, um, not very nice words if he wanted to fight, dot, dot, dot. Uh, David kept walking and um, then they looked around and uh, he was in the boxing stance and Kloster chased David, threw a punch, he missed, tackled him to the ground. He then a, a punched two of David's friends. David got up and uh, in that meantime, David's other friends noticed something that was happening. They ran back and in that meantime, Kloster's two mates or other mates crossed over the road and punched uh, the two of David's friends who came to try and see what was happening and try and help. Uh, one was knocked unconscious as well and had a broken jaw. Then a third attacker attacked another friend. And while this was all happening, David was, and it, you can see it in the vision that they released, he was backing away with his hands, you know, not being aggressive, you know, walking backwards not wanting to, um, and no one at all ever threw a punch. Um, Kloster got up, he slipped on the ground, got up and threw an almighty punch, uh, which hit David, it actually lifted him off the ground. And uh, he was knocked unconscious before he hit the ground and he didn't have any chance of breaking his fall. And that did all the damage. So you had the very difficult harrowing decision to make after that about what happened to David or was David killed outright? No, he was revived at the scene. Um, a stranger, 17 year old stranger started to perform CPR on David. In the meantime the police came and they took over, they revived David and in that process the ambulance came and then they airlifted him to the Alfred Hospital. I got the phone call from one of his friends at about one o'clock that New Year's Eve morning to say something had happened to David. They didn't say how bad or what real condition that they're deciding which hospital to take him to when they, we got the phone call, spoke to a police officer that they were airlifting him to the Alfred. I thought, well, he's gonna be in good hands there. We made our way down to the hospital, my daughters my and their boyfriends and David's father and the helicopter arrived shortly after and um, they took him into emergency and we waited and waited and waited until three doctors came through the emergency doors to speak to us and I knew then there wasn't going to be any chance to save David and look they said we'll still monitor him, they'll you know check for his brain activity and all that but the swelling into the, the back of the brain um, was just really quite significant. They couldn't operate it was just, and then um, they did all the tests that they could do and they announced at, you know, almost 4pm New Year's Eve that there was nothing they could do and that he's brain dead. And, um, and in that same conversation, you know, 
about organ donation, so that was a, a double whammy, uh, which we agreed to. Um, but we stayed with David until, you know, the early mornings of New Year's morning, um, you know, while the fireworks were happening in the CBD, we could see them from his room. We're not celebrating at all. We were mourning David and he was warm. He was, um, my David, he just looked just beautiful. Um, and to think he was so strong and so healthy, never really been sick a day in his life. And that one punch just killed him. And Amy, you had to make the awful decision two days after Brett had been hit to turn life support off. Yeah. So it's very, uh, you know, listening to Katerina talk, it's it's always harder to hear, you know, when you, when you talk about your own case, you sort of can sometimes put your emotions in check. But when I listen to her, it just breaks my heart. But everything that she says is, it's like a mirror image of exactly what happened with Brett and the fact that there was a, you know, flown to hospital and, and the doctors and, you know, someone's in hospital, you think that they're going to get better, that the doctors are going to save them. But in our case, it, it went downhill very, very quickly. And I actually got told that um, originally he there was an 80% chance that he was going to be okay, that it looked like a head injury, um, not necessarily a brain injury. And then we waited and waited and waited and finally, you know, someone comes out to talk to you and it was at that point that they explained exactly what had happened to Brett, the fact that the the swelling on the brain was increasing and the other side of the brain was now starting to swell, that they had been clotting on the brain and, in fact, they had to remove part of his brain. And hearing this information, so much of you wants to hold out hope that that that's okay in a way, like, okay, well, we've, that, that's what's happened. What can we do to fix it? But when you've got injuries such as that, there's no recovery. To me, it was um, he is faced if he if he does survive. And that was a big if, it was a 1% chance of surviving, that his life from that point on, he would be a, a complete, um, what's to say, in, in a vegetative state. He would, he would be a shell. He would, he'd not be there. And that comes from, that, that was evident with the, the part of his brain that was removed. And it wasn't a life that he ever would want to live. And we'd actually had the conversations um, throughout our marriage. You know, if anything ever does happen, you know, you don't you don't want to live like that. And we had three children: five, four, and two. Even faced with all of that knowledge, nothing prepares you for switching off those machines. The the thing that unites these two cases is not just the date on which they occurred, but the fact that it was a senseless act of violence and the one punch did the damage. Now, Katerina, you've done some surveying of the extent of these one-punch attacks that have resulted in deaths, and the figures are shocking. Yeah. Since the year 2000 to 2016, there we, we've counted about 108 one-punch deaths. 
and it's something that we shouldn't accept. And if it doesn't kill, as Amy was, was saying, it would have, it leaves a lot of people in, with brain injuries and a shell. So we, you know, it's, it's not a statistic, it's not a cancer. We don't need research grants, we don't need a cure. All these deaths and injuries are avoidable. Well, what we know is that across Australia there are lots of different legislative responses to this phenomenon, this epidemic of these kind of senseless acts. And I guess what both of you went through initially was, as well as the shock and the, the grief and the dealing with the, the, the immediate aftermath, you begin to see the process work towards a trial, a court case. And Amy, I'm wondering for you, particularly as a police officer, how that played out. What was it like watching a court case unfold where you were an observer and seeing what happened and whether or not you got close to justice? It was definitely surreal in the way that I, I understand the criminal justice system a lot more than your average person would. But this, this time I was the victim of the crime. Justice for me would have been that, that he admitted to what he had done, that he had taken responsibility for what he had done. The video footage showed exactly what he had done and he didn't do that. As a result of his right to not take that responsibility, my family were put through a criminal trial. When someone dies as a result of a crime, it felt to me like Brett was on trial. Why does my mother-in-law have to sit through statements of people giving certain evidence which is in complete contradiction to the video footage? Why does that happen? What was he charged with? He was charged with murder at first and it was downgraded very quickly to manslaughter. He received bail not long after that and we went to an oral committal on manslaughter and that's where it remained and he was eventually found guilty of manslaughter. But the sentence uh, in the first instance was just three years and eight months or one year and ten months on parole and this was later extended on appeal to five years. Two and a half years on parole. Not a very yeah. long sentence. It did not, in my opinion, reflect the pain and suffering, not just for the loss of the life but for the future loss. Like my children, it's been seven years now and they they still cry every day. You know, my daughter is constantly saying that she wishes her dad was here and that she misses her dad. She she was two years old when he died. So without sounding harsh, she's missing a memory and she's missing what she feels a father figure would be in her life. Katerina, in your case, uh, Dylan Kloster eventually received a sentence of nine years and three months. Now... Was that sufficient or not? Uh, well, that was a maximum and a minimum of six years, which most likely he'll only serve six years. No, that that wasn't enough. It'll it'll never be enough. I think if he received at least something over 10 years minimum, that would have started to give us a bit of comfort, but definitely six years minimum is not enough. How would you characterise how you felt watching this play out and that eventual sentence? Was it frustrating? Was it annoying? What was the emotion? All of those and exactly what Amy said. You know, we were the... David was the one who was, you know, challenged. You know, he was the one who was tested. You know, the injustices of it all. You know, they're, they're given every 
every chance and every, I think it's, uh, they're treated like royalty. They're given a lot of times free legal aid, which helps them keep fighting. Dylan Kloster fought for 20 months before he pleaded guilty. And again, like as Amy said, three cameras caught 95% of the incident. So what was he going to fight? He, like many others in the system that get free legal aid, don't take responsibility. Well, I'm wondering with both of you, at what point this grief, this terrible grief, translates into action? Because both of you did act. You decided to do something in the face of the frustration and the grief. For you, Amy, in the Northern Territory, what was the trigger? At what point did you decide that you wanted to do something to change the law? I would say that it was my mother-in-law. She attended every single day of the oral committal and then every single day of the trial. And we were pulled in by the prosecution and advised, you know, pre-trial conference, advised that due to the wording of the legislation and and due to the points of proof that um, he had offered a plea to aggravated assault and the fact that the injuries on Brett um, were, they couldn't prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the injuries were suffered from the assault and not from medical intervention trying to save his life so they could prove aggravated assault or they were going to run with manslaughter. But with manslaughter came the risk of losing. And if we couldn't meet the points of proof and if we lost, he walked away scot-free. And the look on her face was just shock horror and she looked at me and and just broke down and said how how does that happen how does that happen he killed my son I can see it I I can see it in the video he killed my son how does he get to walk out or why is there a chance that he can walk out scot-free and that was the point then that I decided right when this is over and we're actually on the on the cameras at the end of the trial and asked, what are we going to do next? The first thing we said was we're going to implement some legislation change. And that was the reason for it. And Katerina, what was the trigger for you? The trigger was way before we went to approach the, a trial date. It was uh, in the August. David was killed, you know, the, he died officially the 31st of December 2012. Eight months later, in about the August, I saw on the news report a family had just come out of court for the, the sentencing of her son's killer and he received a minimum of five years and I think a maximum of eight. And I could see myself in that situation, however long down the track, coming out of court and, and knowing that we weren't going to get any justice. And I thought, well, you know, six years, five years, is that all David's life is worth? Is that what anyone's life is worth? You know, how much more dead do you have to be? Dead's dead. That's why there's murder and then there's manslaughter. Well, you know. So um, I said about, and then I also realised that, you know, one punch does kill. I never really thought that. So coming up to, we're approaching another Christmas, another New Year's Eve, more um, partying, all those things that we should be entitled to do safely and get home safe. So I spoke with my family and friends um, about doing something to raise awareness 
that one punch does kill and also to petition the Napsign government at the time to, you know, if it is manslaughter, which it should be murder, but if it's going to be under manslaughter, at least raise the minimum to at least 10 years. Forget about, you know, saying it's a maximum of 20 years because no one ever touches the maximum. So that's when we wrote, um, put together a petition online and we went, you know, shopping centres doing the old-fashioned way, getting signatures. And then in the January, we met with the Attorney General, Robert Clark and Edward O'Donoghue, who was a police or corrections minister at the time, and they could see the pain. We spoke to them. I was there with two other people about the injustice of it all. And lo and behold, by the August of 2014, so pretty much eight months after we met with the government, they announced that they were introducing the new coward's punch manslaughter law and it became law on the 1st of November 2014. We'll come back to how that happened in a moment. But um, Amy, what did you do? What was the next step after you'd had that appearance after the court case? What did you do next to make action happen? I actually rang the university up here in Darwin and I just made a general inquiry and can I said, can I talk to a law professor? I don't care which one. I just need to speak to someone who teaches law. And I explained to him the dilemma that I was facing in, in that I believe that there was a massive black hole in our legislation between manslaughter and aggravated assault or serious harm. And when he said, well, why do you feel that? And I said, because if we didn't have video footage that showed what happened to Brett, we would have a witness list of maybe 80-20, 80% in favour of the defendant, 20% in favour of Brett, who have perceived things a different way than what the video footage show. And without that footage, it was a big key piece of our evidence. At the end of the day, someone died as a result of being punched. So therefore, there is a black hole. And he agreed with me and we went writing through some legislation and ended up writing on this scrap piece of paper, very simple, you know, if you assault, if you unlawfully assault someone and they die, then you're guilty of that offence. No ifs, buts, maybes about it. If it's an unlawful assault, so it's not in self-defence, it's not under duress, if it is unlawful, then you are guilty. And I took that to my local member um, who was in opposition at the time and he took it, I guess, to his boss and it sort of went from there. Now, um, now that legislation was, or that draft legislation was in fact mirroring the laws in Western Australia, wasn't it? Yeah, very closely. Yeah, very closely. So we did a bit of research into the WA legislation and what I like about their legislation is it's straight to the point. Yeah, and that's, I think we get lost in, I don't know if you've ever actually pulled out a piece of legislation and read it, but it's not the, not the easiest thing to sort of get your head around and it just needs to be direct. It needs to be, if you do this and this happens, then you're guilty. No ifs, buts, maybes. And when you took that to your local member, what sort of response did you get? How, how did it then work its way through the parliament? Well, he um, was obviously aware of the case. It was very highly publicised up here in the media. And I sat down and explained to him what I felt and, you know, what had happened and why. So they agreed and they sent it off 
for their own legal opinion and then they do what they do in parliament i guess and and go through it and and cover all defenses and make sure everybody's fairly treated under the law and then they brought it up for discussion in parliament and i would attend these parliament sittings and i was the only person in the in the public gallery and i would watch the vote occur and to me it felt like it wasn't a vote of the right thing to do or a vote for how do we protect the future of the Northern Territory. It was, well, what party is bringing in this piece of legislation? And because the vote was straight down the middle, everyone in the Liberal Party voted for it and everyone in the Labor Party voted against it. And it was at that point that I thought this is now, it's just a political debate. They don't see the the importance behind it. They don't understand the importance behind it. The fact what we're trying to do is save a family from ever having to go through what my family went through in a criminal trial. Now, Katarina, I can see you nodding there. In your case, you were asking for something quite different. You you hit upon the idea, which in a sense mirrors the New South Wales legislation of mandatory minimum sentences, which is a very different approach. What happened to that when that became the draft or the bill, draft law, the bill, did it become a political football too? Um, actually, it, it wasn't. I uh, Strangely, one Saturday night, I read a lot of the transcript from Parliament and at the time the Liberals were in, in power, but also a lot of the Labor, the opposition, supported the, the move to, to bring in the, in the law. The Labor at the time wanted to introduce a death by assault, not in coward punch terms, so whatever... A, punch whether you're facing someone I would believe or from the side or the, the you know that punch has killed the person so it would I think the outcome still would have been the same a 10-year minimum but they did support and they referenced David's case and many others that had lost their lives and I'm glad it wasn't a political match uh, which at times it can be. And Amy, in the Northern Territory, did it become bipartisan at any point or did it remain politically uh, contested? It went through a couple of readings in Parliament and it wasn't until uh, Liberal were granted power in Parliament they won the election and it was one of the election promises that this legislation would be the first cab off the rank that the law was passed. Did you consider mandatory minimums in the Northern Territory and why did you opt not to go down that path? I did consider it and to not push for mandatory sentencing is purely a personal reason and I can see why there is mandatory sentencing and, and Katarina's grief, I could never, ever understand where where she is as a mother and my thought process was my middle child has autism and I have seen over the years, you know, behaviour which needs to be managed and controlled with him in him and he's not a violent child by any means but if he is pushed to a point, he cannot control his behaviour and does lash out. My biggest fear would be that one day Possibly he could be out on the town and if he got to a point where he couldn't control his behaviour or something that was out of his control and what happens if it was him? You know, would would I want him to go to jail for 10 years straight away? 
Well, in fact, the Law Council of Australia and many others, including many academics, have spoken out against mandatory minimum sentences. There's a really hot debate about whether it is the most effective way of curbing this problem because it has all sorts of unintended consequences. People get caught up in the net. But nevertheless, for you, Katerina, that was the direction you took. And presumably you have still a very strong rationale for that approach. I do. Um, and with mandatory minimums, there's always an opt-out clause with judges, you know, exceptional circumstances, I'm sure there's. And that's what, you know, has to be tightened as well. And if, you know, if anyone with a, a mental illness and does something, you know, it, I'm sure there's an out clause, which there's that protection there. But if our sentencing was harsh enough, and we are battling the law council and the legal eagles and the judges who say, um, mandatory sentencing doesn't work. If the sentencing was harsher enough, if if it's a 20-year maximum or a 25-year maximum, whatever the case may be, you have to at least give half of it as a minimum. You know, for it to fall way short and only give a quarter of that maximum, that there's something definitely wrong. So in other words, you're not fixed on it being a mandatory minimum so much as you just want there to be a decent sentence exactly. that's commensurate with the crime that was committed. Exactly. You know, as I said before, how much more dead you have to be. And and you with know. that, I completely, completely agree. Uh, why do we have a maximum sentence of 25 years and they impose a sentence of one year, 10 months? I don't get that. And what I didn't understand with cases was when it came to sentencing, six similar cases, the sentence of six similar cases across Australia are put up for the judge to consider goalposts, you know. So some guy might have got three years, one got seven. Do we go in the middle? Do we go less than that? Do we go more than that? Because there's an appeal process that's open to, well, why did he get more than me? That's exactly what Amy was saying. If we're going to change and, and become tougher, it's going to be difficult because the system as it is, it's all based on parity. And as Amy referred to, they'll, they'll look at three or four other cases and to see for the similar type of um, offence, okay, they've got five, six, seven years and they'll give a, a, you know, something in between. So that's never going to change the system because, and, and if there is a judge that, that does give 10 years as a minimum for manslaughter, that will be challenged very quickly by the defence. And that's why I believe, and I strongly believe, that we need minimum mandatory sentencing. And it's easy for the Law Council to come out and say, and they've used the one-punch laws as a, an example, that, you know, it's not fair, it doesn't work. Two brothers, you know, one-punched the guy in... You know, and if he would have died, he would have gotten a minimum of, you know, whatever years in New South Wales. This is the case of Barry and Patrick Little in New South that's Wales. That's right. And it's easy for them to say that, but... Don't just say what's not going to work. Tell us what you can do to fix it and to change it. You know, they've gone to... I haven't gone to university. I've only learnt this because of the tragedy of losing David. And I'm just trying to make sense of it still. And it's, it's those comments that keep digging the knife in and keep twisting it when we hear these people say that. And that's what we're battling. So it's a system that is a lot of contradictions, open to interpretation and where the victims who have to keep suffering the injustices. Well, both of you have been galvanised through grief into action and both of you have brought about changes to the law, a remarkable achievement in both cases. Amy, can I ask you, what have you learnt about affecting change through this? I've learnt that 
if you strongly believe in something, then no matter what you face and no matter what criticism you cop or what obstacles you have to overcome, you need to stick by it and you need to see it through because I didn't do this just for my mother-in-law. I didn't do this to protect my children. I did this for every single family that, and it will happen again. You know, as Katerina gave you the stats before, it's it's going to happen again. It's not something that's just going to go away now that someone's been sentenced for it. And if you believe in it, it can happen. You've just got to stick true to yourself and not give up. And Katerina? Exactly um, what Amy said. And we don't get our loved ones back because of this change. And it's uh, we never want these laws to be used. But unfortunately, as Amy said, it, it will keep happening. But I believe strongly enough and having to speak about what happened to David, it hurts every single day. But speaking about it, you know, just keeps um, the emotions raw. But I believe strongly that it needed to be done. And I never thought in my wildest dreams that we would achieve what we did achieve. And we had a lot of support. And, you know, the co-founders of our Stop One Punch Can Kill Foundation were part of this. And it was for David in in part, but it's for all the other victims after David that hopefully other families can find some justice. Amy Meredith and Katerina Politi, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Serving Northern Territory Police Officer Amy Meredith and Katerina Politi of the Stop One Punch Can Kill campaign in Victoria. Change Agents is a collaboration between The Conversation and the Swinburne Leadership Institute and Swinburne University's Department of Media and Communication. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or listen on SoundCloud. Producer Sam Wilson, production by Heather Jarvis. I'm Andrew Dodd. See you next time for Change Agents. Change Agents.